0: We know Georgia politics from Peachtree Street to Pennsylvania Avenue. Politically Georgia podcast delivers exclusive news and analysis five days a week by a team of veteran political insiders watching your public officials. Hosted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy. Listen weekdays at 10 a.m. on WABE 90.1. Stream everywhere or at AJC.com forward slash podcasts. News and analysis five days a week from Politically Georgia podcast. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you this time, and we welcome you in. One of the things we try to do on the Fox 5 on the Hill podcast is bring in folks uh, who have not only uh, experience um, in politics and around politics, but experience in in life. And I think that that's what we're we're doing this time as we sit down with Phil Thompson. He's a former a state conference member in Virginia for the NAACP. And uh, Philip, we appreciate you coming and uh, joining us on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me here today.
0: So um, now as we sit here smack dab in the middle of February 2020, we are officially one year from really what was one of the most remarkable months I can ever remember in in, in Virginia politics, uh, there was a tr- troika of scandals that rocked not only the Commonwealth of Virginia, but the United States uh, uh, nationally as well, too. Governor Ralph Northam um, had it disclosed that there was a picture of an individual in blackface on his yearbook. The governor was not able to explain why that was there. Uh, but then later, in a remarkable news conference, admitted that he had actually worn blackface himself during a, a Michael Jackson press conference that was soon followed by a disclosure by the Democratic Attorney General Moore caring that he had too once worn blackface while a college student and then uh, a pair of dual allegations against the lieutenant governor um, Justin Fairfax of a sexual assault um, the lieutenant governor actually just had a lawsuit dismissed against the CBS television network which had interviewed two of his accusers Um, That's a roundabout way, Phil, of of getting to the question of where are African-American voters in Virginia in their feelings about not only what happened last year, but where we are today? Are are there still questions, concerns, anger about this? Because a lot of the Democratic leaders will, will, when we bring these kinds of questions up, say, well, you've got to move on. We've moved on.
1: I think there's a resignation, and it's part of uh, you know a resignation of being African American in, in in America that you you know you have to accept certain things, and unfortunately, that seems to be the the, the operative uh, part of this that we seem to have to accept the reality that that Northam could, you know do these things or be involved with these things, and the same thing with Mark Herron, and we had to accept it and move on, and that's what people keep saying we move on. But the trauma of what we've gone through doesn't go away. You know, that it's still there. It's still when you have conversations among African-Americans, we still refer to Governor Northam as coon man, understanding all the aspects of what that means. And
0: that comes from something that was written on his own yearbook page. It was it was written on his printed on his yearbook page, which the governor, again, has never really fully explained what that was about.
1: That's been my concern. You know, I, I was one of the most vocal critics of the governor in, in, in this whole process. Long before a lot of people gave up, I was still pushing and to the point that the governor came by and, and met with me and another uh, individual delegate, Mike Futrell, to kind of talk this issue out. But, you know, everything that I said was that, Governor, you have to go out and explain yourself. You can't just walk away and say it's over with, people have gone past it. You have to explain what happened. He gave us some explanations plausible or not but he didn't he didn't give i believe the people of the commonwealth an explanation
0: so last month um after the uh last round of elections uh, democrats took over as a majority party in the general assembly for the first time in a generation um we now have uh, for the first time ever a female speaker of the house uh eileen phillacorn and um an african-american woman charlene harry who is the majority leader Uh, of the house Democrats was the selection of filler corn and herring in these top positions you feel some echo of what happened last year was that they needed to show that they had understood that there was a a message that they, they have to have to acknowledge some of the disenfranchisement that's gone on
1: I don't want to take anything from those two uh, 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 delegates. Uh, Philip Korn and delegates Herring are, are amazing people, very uh, strong in their own rights. Um, but the specter is always there, you know that that are they are they trying to make up for you know their shortcomings in certain aspects of it, and you know look at the Senate side. You got the Senate pro tem was mm-hmm. uh, Louise Lucas, yeah. and 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 again. You know, Louise is, is is an amazing politician. Has been around for a long time, very very well known. So maybe it was her turn. But mm-hmm. you always look at these things through a lens. You know, was it something that was done in order to make up for some shortcomings in other areas where they felt like African Americans felt like they've been jaded?
0: Well, that that's the personnel. Let's talk about the policy now. Um, there have been a lot of very high profile. Moves made by the Democratic General Assembly, Uh, Second Amendment, uh, gun laws, new new gun laws restrictions. They have been working on um, sports gaming as well, too, equal rights amendment. But do you feel that um, issues important to the African-American community, the Commonwealth of Virginia, have been put on the same level as some of these other things that the democrats have pointed towards success especially in regards to things like you know pro uh pro-choice legislation
1: no and we we get we get things like commission to uh remove old laws that really aren't affecting us but you know oh we're gonna you know move this old law that restricted african-americans in some way and whatever. You know, that's 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 fine. Symbolic. But what's policy? You know, and if you if you get something from Governor Northam's office, he'll list all these policy committees he's done, a few things he's done. But one of the key issues is the state of Virginia spends billions of dollars and you cannot get them to tell you how much of that money goes to African American contractors. I'm trying. I'm FOIAing everybody and then some and all I get is no, you gotta go over there, or we don't keep that information how do you not know where your money's going and who's getting that money
0: one of the things that they've moved on is uh, removal of uh, some confederate statues uh, freeing up you know a lot of times when these issues have come up a lot of the local jurisdictions will say well it's out of our control the the state has the final say on this and the state is now uh, receding some control back to the, the local jurisdictions is that an issue amongst black voters in Virginia because it just seems to have morphed into an argument amongst white people in some regards.
1: Well, I led the first uh, protest for statues in Leesburg, Virginia in 2015 before it became fashionable now to go after uh, uh, statues as NAACP president. And this happened right after uh, the shooting in South Carolina. And there was a lot of issues about this i had not really paid attention to the statue all that much until after the shootings and then when i focused on it you know i did have some concerns that it was set at our courthouse and that it were, there was no context or anything and then the other part of it uh Loudoun county was not a battleground so why do we got a statue at our courthouse but you know the statues are more symbolic of of of, of a system of white supremacy and i think that's the reason why at times they become and then charlottesville made statues. Even that much more important because of what went down after Charlottesville and going over to, and going through the statue. So I think that you know the statue, given local control, is important. You know, if you take a city like Norfolk, which is predominantly African American, they want to remove their statues, and they should be allowed to. Mm-hmm. But statues don't, you know, feed people, house people, and do these other things. So you know, it's important. But where's the economic? Where's the economic? For African Americans Where schools You look at You look at Virginia Has Mm -hmm. uh, Three Different uh, State run uh, um, HBCUs Historically black College and university Due to per capita Spending at those schools Compared to Virginia Tech And University of Virginia Ain't even close
0: But is that what Politicians do a lot They'll, They'll Point at something Like the issue Of Confederate Statues Now Growing up in New Jersey And moving here 20 years ago I never understood why these were all over the place seemingly when I would go to some of these towns. It seemed to me, growing up in the north, that we, we defeated the Confederacy, and I never really quite got my mind around why these statues were up in the first place until I started reading about when they actually were put up, which was tended to be around, you know, the late nineteen tens, the early nineteen twenties. And it was a reaction to some of the progress that African-Americans were finally starting to take in American society. So up goes these Confederate statues. But you fast forward that now to 2020. Is it enough to take them down and not simultaneously have empowerment zones, have job programs, have tuition assistance? What's, What's the point of bringing down these brick and mortar structures, if you're not going to build it with something in its place that can actually advance the cause that these statues uh, seem to push back up against.
1: Because the former, the economic development, the empowerment zones, that's harder than just taking down a statue. Mm-hmm. And a politician can point to a statue and say, right, I had to remove that statue, so you know you guys should be happy, be quiet. Changing the economics and how things are going in, in, in certain asp- in certain communities, that's a more difficult argument. But nobody has proposed, no politician, national, state, whatever, has proposed an African-American empowerment policy or program that these things that we're going to do, it's always tied to some criminal justice. It's always tied to something that's not fungible toward people's pocketbooks or pe- people's lifestyles, people's standards of living.
0: You're listening to the Fox 5 On The Hill podcast from Fox 5 in Washington, D.C.
1: The murder of Robert Wan,
0: one of the most puzzling and gripping cases in the D.C. area. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me as I take a closer look at the mystery on Swan Street in a Fox 5 podcast available on Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify. This is the On The Hill podcast. I'm Tom Fitzgerald with Philip Thompson. He's a former Virginia State Conference member of the NAACP. Uh, Philip, right before the break, we were talking about the relationship between, you know, the issue of, of Confederate statues versus the issue of, you know, economic and e- educational empowerment for a- African-Americans. One of the things that we've heard in in Virginia, uh, not only from the current governor, R- Ralph Northam, but the previous his previous governor, uh, Terry McAuliffe, was pointing towards uh, the restoration of voting rights for uh, recently released people from prison um, you said that when you've heard that conversation you, 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 you kind of hear that and say to yourself that doesn't represent all African American voters in the Commonwealth of Virginia are, are, are politicians making a mistake when they point that out to African American audiences as, as evidence that they care about the community and its concerns?
1: It's one of the problems that I've had, always had with, with white liberals, and that the things that they, oh, we have to protect you, oh, we have to save you, and the things they point to are things that are not positive. You know, so so when when someone tells me, oh, we're, we're you know, their first thing out their mouth when it talks about African-Americans is, we, you know, we're, we're, we're restoring felons' voting rights, uh, it, almost immediately I go, you don't have a clue. What we're looking for and what we really want, you know, you're again telling us what you think is important to us. You know, when you know felons make up a small number of of, of our total vote, if if you're going to restore felons, and I ain't doing them helping you. You know, you're trying to get you're trying to pander to the votes. What's more important is what are you going to do with those felons when they get out? What's their programs? What programs do you have? If you're going to tell me about, oh, I'm concerned about felons. Shouldn't just be to go to the ballot box. it should be able to go and what can they do to keep them from becoming felons again and become you know, viable members in, in society. That should be the focus and nobody focuses on that and they don't focus on them when they're locked up. You know, In Virginia, we've had numerous individuals die incarcerated and you can't even at times get a clear investigation from the attorney general's office, from the, pris- the prison's office, from the state police. It's just this roundabout thing that they put you through this washing machine that they wash all racial issues through. And when you look at when you in the end, your clothes come out dirty and wet.
0: As we sit here right now, there are no more uh, African-American candidates for president in the Democratic presidential field. Uh, mass. Former Massachusetts Governor uh, Deval Patrick um, uh, ended his campaign. Uh, several days ago, even though Patrick didn't really not get much uh, ground under his wheels uh, as he was moving forward, never really shared any of the major debate stages with anybody. Um, What do you see when you look at these Democrats who who are still running for president? Mike Bloomberg has kind of burst onto the scene right now through this massive advertising campaign. But even he has now in the last couple of days started to get some blowback over policies that he oversaw as New York City mayor in regards to stop and and, and frisk. Joe Biden obviously uh, had to uh, answer some questions about school busing early on. Um, When you look at the Democratic candidates that are running for president right now, do you see anybody who speaks to the questions and concerns of of African-American voters that that you know and you speak to?
1: Not even close. And and all of them, all go off on this tangent of things that really again don't address us you know don't address our real issues and so you know we're going to get passed over you know it's, it's just a, it's just you look at who we got left and what they say we're going to be an afterthought and now they're all going to fight over us for the primary because they need our votes you know that we're going to carry somebody over the top in the primary in certain ways but as soon as the primary is over and we get to the general we're gone. We're going back to the back of the bus, and they're not going to pay attention to us. It's just how the Democrats operate.
0: Joe Biden keeps saying that you know when he gets to South Carolina that that will be the you know real launching point of his campaign. You know, fourth uh, into the into the races here after losing in Iowa, losing in New Hampshire. It's, it's likely that he's probably not going to be able to overcome Bernie Sanders in, in, in Nevada um is joe biden's popularity amongst african americans more about joe biden or the fact that he was barack obama's vice president
1: partially barack obama's vice president partially his time on the scene mm-hmm. you know joe's never been quote unquote seen as an adversary of, of of a lot of issues although if you start looking at joe's history on bussing and Joe's history at the Nita, the, the, NIDA, the uh, uh, Clarence Thomas hearings, yeah. you know, Joe is Joe has got his own checkered past and issues that he has to address. But I think he was seen as the as the known factor, very similar to when, uh, two thousand and eight, when Hillary, you know, was Bill Clinton's wife, so everybody jumped, all African Americans jumped to Hillary initially, and then Barack Obama came, and initially African Americans like, ah, hey, we don't know this guy, we don't know what he's up to. Right. I think that's what happened with Joe, and now people are starting to starting to filter away, just as they filtered away from from Hillary, uh, in that election. So
0: that brings us to Donald Trump. Um, you know, Donald Trump, uh, seeming in in every speech he makes, he did it again at the State of the Union address. Talks about low rates of African American unemployment. Now, some people might not like the way the president conducts himself, might not like the way he tweets or, or the things he says, but that actually is true. So does, w- which one carries more weight, the, the economic success that the Trump administration has had or the president himself and how he conducts his presidency? What matters more at the end of the day,
1: the results or how we got there? The results should matter. But when you call me the blacks, as he does, you know you you it just turns it just your brain kind of shuts down. Shows at that a disconnect. Point, you know of and, how and, you, it, how you speak to people. Right, his yeah. mouth is his worst enemy when it comes to African Americans, and his mouth can be his best asset when it comes to African Americans. It's what he says and how he says it. You know, he his ad during the, during the Super Bowl was as slick as they get. One of the best political ads I've seen.
0: But it was directed primarily at African Americans. Right. but what did yeah. it focus
1: on? Getting a black woman out of jail, not buying her, not allowing her to buy a house, not putting her kids in good schools, not economic development around her, getting her out of jail. The sentencing so, reform. Right, so it yeah. always goes back to, you guys are criminals, you guys are bad. You know, I'm am going to make it easier on you. That kind of stuff. But, you know, in the end, Donald Trump's mouth is his problem, in the way he says things because. I work with republican candidates before i worked with uh talked with ed i was working with ed gillespie when he was running yeah. for governor mainly just to make sure there's african-american thoughts going into some of his policies And as i used to tell ed it's the way you say things it's the way you say things if you say something wrong at first then i'm going to turn you off right after that yeah. so it's the way you talk to people and I think with, that's with Donald Trump. I mean, he's been successful to an extent doing what he does with certain elements of the, of the, of the country. But if, you, if he really, truly wants to get African-American votes, he's got to stop calling us the blacks. He's got to stop, you know, focusing on just the bad things that happened to us and focus on the good things. Look, this is what we've done. This many African-Americans have gotten new houses. This many African-Americans have gotten jobs. These many people got promoted. Start looking at the f- facts and use that. And, you know, for, And for all of the
0: candidates, though, it, it seems like if you're not regularly in conversations with people who are not like you, you are constantly going to be running into that situation of how you talk to people. If you're not comfortable talking with latino people then you suddenly go out on a campaign stump to say all these things to them you're not going to have a level of of comfort in your own words with how you address folks the only time you ever see them is when you're standing up at a microphone giving a campaign speech same thing with every other group that you would address You, you need to have a daily diet and inclusion of people every single day not just when you're coming out every now and then and giving a speech or making a campaign appearance.
1: I'm going to say something that's pretty controversial, but I blame those African-American advisors around these candidates. Are you having a real conversation with this candidate or are you just saying what you want him to hear? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems with African-Americans. Too many times when confronted with with white, white Americans or other people, we don't actually say what we say in, in our conversations with each other. So we have a tendency not to give them the message that they need to get. I don't believe that Bernie Sanders has people saying, "Look, you're 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 no white dude, and the way you talk and the way you confront people is wrong." I don't think people around Buttigieg saying the same thing. Look, you know, people look at you. I look at you as a white, as an African American, as a white dude that's been you know able to get white privilege. You know, and this is what you have to, this is what you have to address. So I think that their advisors are not advising them correctly. And I know a lot of Democratic candidates and advisors and politicians. And when they speak to white America, they speak differently than when they speak to me. And then that that, that doesn't give people the right message because you can't, if you, we don't tell you what we're thinking or how we feel or how what you just said affects people, then you don't know. And if you don't know, you don't know. Are, are you surprised we have this much work to
0: do in 2020, coming off of the first two-term African-American president in this country's history. A lot of people in 2008 probably thought by 2020, we'd be a lot further along on this than we when we are.
1: I graduated from high school in 1980. I came into a world that, you know, although Ronald Reagan was the president, there was opportunities out there for us to do. I went on to graduate from school, become a Marine officer, went to law school, all these various things in in, 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 in 80s the 1980s getting to the 90s you're feeling some things are going you know in the right direction I don't know what happened between 2000 and 2020 I, you know I, I sit back and look at this world like man in the 80s you know there was plenty of opportunity there was everybody I knew went to college most friends I had went to college and we just saw the world as being open for us to do a lot of things of course you had issues there here and there. But this balkanism and this thing we got now, man, it is, it is frightening. It's frightening. And it's different than it was in the 80s and 90s, which weren't great, you know, weren't, weren't, weren't. Yeah. But, but there was opportunity and we felt like you could move forward. Now there's a lot of African Americans and a lot of minorities who don't think things are, are open and free. And you're like, how do we get here? In 2020, you know, I'm a kid of the kid of the, kid of the you know George Jetsons. Mm-hmm. You know, by 2020, I thought we'd be flying around in cars and we'd have this <laughs> post-modern world. Right, but right. We've, we're almost like we're back in the 60s in certain ways in how people think and how people talk. Although, although it isn't that way when you start looking at jobs and people going up the ladder. Every time you turn on TV, there's people everywhere doing all kinds of things. But men- mentally wise. You know, I talked to my 80-something year old mother and she sometimes talks about like now like it's 1950s and I'm like, "Oh, it's not 1950s, but in her mind, there's some echoes of it." Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I've always kind of felt too that like the the one way out of that though is that our part politics have become so marginalized and when I when I say that, I mean we're off on the margins. The Democratic Party has pushed to to the left margin. The Republican Party has pushed to the right margin and and, and the only way maybe back towards some common language is if we all get out of our own groups and start having difficult conversations with people that are are not like us because otherwise you're just making things up in your head about what you think they think unless you have a conversation with somebody and, and hear it from their own
1: lips. The world of the politicians is not the world we live in. Yeah. They live in these—they live in this balkanized world, right and left. When actually we work every day, we go to work with people who don't look like us, who don't come from the same environment, and we get along. We get the job done. You know, I was in the Marine Corps, and we had—you know—everybody's green, dark green, light green, but we got the job done. And that's what you see in America. Most, most, most jobs and most people I work with—we just go about getting the work done. We don't worry about right and left. You know, and that's where. I think our salvation is as a country, and the reason why we haven't pulled apart, because you know, despite the fact of what people might sit in their living rooms and and look at on TV and, and news, when you come to work, you work. You know, if the black guy next to me is a hard worker, or the white guy next to me is a hard worker, that's all I really care about. You know, um, you know, we get along, we like our kids, you know, these types of things. So, we don't live in the world that TV and and all that right. postulates. It's really not that bad. I can go down south. When I go down south, I'm not fearful. Mm-hmm. I can go into any bar, any restaurant, you know, whoever's there, I can ch- I can start up a conversation and we can get along and we can do things. Is it until we start talking this political spectrum that we get a little crazy. I was at the gun rally and you know, it yeah. is what it is, you know, yeah. and, and 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 people like guns and I like guns and you know, does that make me a bad guy? No, but you know, you just people are people and you just have to deal with that as such.
0: Philip Thompson has been our guest this time on the On the Hill podcast. Uh, And uh, Phil, we thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us on the television program and doing some overtime with us here on the On the Hill podcast.
1: Appreciate it, sir.
0: Thank you. conversation. We thank you as well, too, for joining us as always. I'm Tom Fitzgerald for the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. You've been On the Hill.
1: Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde 7.99 dollars y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carter's. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney. Celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters se excluyendo de los cupones.
0: Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.